Good morning. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad all of you have come this morning. Last week, if you missed it, we started a little mini two-part series called Heaven Expanding. And we talked about the heart of this idea that when one person steps across the line of faith, that all of heaven celebrates because one more life, right, expands heaven. If you missed it last week, I encourage you to go back and, and uh, listen to that on our website. And we're going to turn to more practical terms and extending that conversation this morning. So th- there's a term that gets used in the Silicon Valley where we live that, that's actually become a fairly common term over the last decade. Perhaps you have heard of it. Maybe even one or two of you are this role. It's a term that gets, gets used in the technology world quite often. It describes an important role. And it's a term that actually comes from the Bible, if you can believe it. You might already have a guess and anticipate what I'm going to say. It's the term, anybody know? Evangelist, right? And, and, and this gets used in many companies, from Apple computers to HP to Microsoft to various companies around the Silicon Valley and beyond. And, and it's also been written about in magazines like Fast Company and Forbes and Harvard Business Review and many more uh, like it. And here's what a technology evangelist in essence is, first little technical definition, but a person who builds up support for a given technology and then establishes it as a standard in the given industry. Makes sense? They strive, in essence, to propel their brand, to propel their company, uh, or or to talk about an innovation, a new innovation. They want to spread the word about, and they're charged, in essence, to make fans out of, you know, whatever that is that they're talking about. I have a friend who's an evangelist at Apple. He works in the app world, and he talks about apps all the time. When you talk about him, he's got enthusiasm and passion and vision, right? You get excited about the app he's talking about. I want to see it. I want to download it. That's the experience, because he's got good news for you that this will benefit better your life, right, is in essence what uh, he's talking about. Now, he believes in the product. He believes in the company, right? He believes in what he's sharing. Now, turn the conversation and put it in another context, right? It's all fun and good. You talk about being an evangelist, a chief evangelist, a company evangelist in tech world, business world, but enter church world. And when you say or hear, perhaps, the word evangelist, a lot of different reactions tend to emerge. Some of you, it's a bit more on the negative side. Maybe it conjures up these images of like hellfire and brimstone preachers or, or some kind of tele-evangelist that you watch and mock on TV or something. Uh, maybe for others, you feel awkward when you even hear the word and you're like, oh no, I'm going to feel guilty. And, and there's all sorts of things that kind of come up when you, when you hear that word. You get a little nervous maybe. It's intimidating. Oh, that's for other people that have the gift. I don't have the gift. And there's many, many reasons we could go on. But my experience in the church world is when that word gets used or brought up, or the connotations that come with that word cause most people to shrink back a little bit. Whether they say it or not is a different thing. But there's fear around it. There's a lot of different reasons. But what I want to propose this morning is that we relook at the word, the term, the concept. And then we look at what the Bible actually says about it. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the word and its applications, quite frankly. There's a New Testament Greek word, and I don't know if I quite pronounce it right, because I don't with other languages or accents, but evangelion, right, is the Greek word, and it literally means good news, or to proclaim the good news. I like hearing good news, how about you? Quite the opposite on bad news, but I like hearing good news. And the Bible teaches that everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus ought to be 
and is called to be an evangelion, a proclaimer of the good news, a spread, a spreader, if that's a word, of the love and forgiveness of God for all humanity. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that includes you. But one of the biggest fears around this word, I believe, is rooted in a massive misconception. And this is what it is, that we, to, fill, to fulfill this calling, to, to play out this role, that we are to become someone that we are not, to carry out the mission of God. And I don't believe that's true. In fact, I believe that God wants to use you in a way that fits the person God made you to be to carry out his grand mission. God knew what he was doing when he made you. He doesn't require you to become someone contrary to who he made you to be. In fact, he custom designed you with unique talents and gifting, personality and abilities, even background. And he built diversity into the fabric of the family of God, the body of Christ. So God wants to use the person God made you to be to help a world without Christ come to know Christ. I believe that. I believe that's what the Bible teaches us. So I hope this morning is actually liberating to you. I hope it gives you a dose of freedom in your life as you seek to align your life with the mission of God. And I also hope that this will help all of us collectively and individually to move our spiritual impact and maximize it in our lives, in the circle of influences that God has given us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the good news for you. Nothing really applies to you today. (laughs) You don't have to do anything. You just get to listen in on the inside conversation of what the mission of God is about and what we really believe as a church. But I want us to look this morning at six people that were uniquely equipped in the New Testament to fulfill differing needs of people who are searching for God. In the process, I hope we'll discover, you know, our unique approach. Because there's six here that I'll present that, that is all about how you go about aligning your life with the mission of God. Sharing the good news. Proclaiming the gospel, one might say. And to have a contagious faith in your life, which I believe, if we're people of faith, followers of Jesus, we ought to have a contagious faith. And as I describe each one of these, my encouragement to you is this, to, 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 to sense and self-reflect on which one fits you. But let me also add, as I move through the six, that there might be applications and implications embedded into each of the six that apply more broadly speaking. So the first one is this, the candid approach. You can write that in your notes if you want, the candid approach. Now, first person from the Bible, this sort of stands out to me is Peter, right? He's this guy that spoke his mind, he shot straight, he spoke the truth, he took initiative, spoke up maybe when he shouldn't have even. Whatever he did, he did it without hesitation, full force. Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples who he thought, who they thought he was. And Peter immediately jumps in, speaks up, and declares Jesus as the Messiah. Just a few verses later, Peter asserts himself by challenging Jesus head on with Jesus' stated mission. Probably not a good idea to challenge and confront the Son of God, but there Peter was. Then on another occasion, Peter's in this boat, and he wants to get near to Jesus, and he'll do anything and everything it, you know, he can to get near him. And of course, you know what he does? He tries to walk on water, and we have this moment. Then later in Jesus' life, when Jesus is surrounded by his enemies, they're coming to take him away, bring him to the cross. Remember what Peter does? He draws a sword and chops a guy's ear off, right? Remember that story? I mean, he's like jumping in, not saying it's always the right thing. Often it's not, but he's the candid type. All Peter needed was to be convinced that he was right, 
And he was going to step in. He was confident. He was bold. He was candid. He was straightforward. Now, maybe some of you can relate to that. It's interesting that God chose this guy, Peter, to, to speak at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as the, as the church was birthed. He needed someone to be uh, unafraid to take a stand to speak the truth. And you know what happened that day? 3,000 people came to know Jesus as their Savior. But, but in the midst of all that, thousands of people were there, and in no uncertain terms, you know what Peter did? He made sure they knew that they had crucified the Messiah. And now they needed to call on him for mercy and forgiveness. And there God was putting Peter right in the moment he was custom designed for. He didn't always get it right, but man, he had a gifting, and as he grew over time, he matured. And there God put him in. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he stands his ground unintimidated, and he was candid about the truth. God miraculously used his efforts so that 3,000 people were saved, and then they were baptized. Now, if that's like your personality, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but, 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 but self-reflect on this. Because there's a few suggestions, I would say, that, that, and one is this, that you don't just go around firing truth at people. That, that's sort of like the, the, the image some of us get about like evangelism, right? It's just about like boom, 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 right? Like, okay, that, that's not the idea here. And when you look at all of Scripture, it, it doesn't actually support that. And you're going to see that as today unfolds. Because, for one, that doesn't work typically in our culture to just fire off truth at anybody you can. It also turns people off, which I'm guessing you don't want to do. And second, it's quite insensitive people, to people's own journey of faith and what God is doing in their life. It doesn't show them dignity and respect, which I believe the Bible supports and tells us to do. So, so perhaps the biggest caution I would say to someone with this style, and you can write down your caution as we go and move through these, but it's to remember this. To use tact and wisdom in the way you approach people. When you speak with candor and challenge someone, you have a gifting. You're unintimidated by those moments. Some of us shrink back and don't speak the truth. Well, you speak the truth, but the Bible says speak the truth in love, always in love. When someone with this style, you know, is going about their business, they need to remember the importance of timing and appropriate doses of not just truth, but also grace. Remember Jesus says he was full of grace and truth, right, bringing those together, and he calls us to bring both together. And people with this approach, right, they tend to be a lot more fearless in their conversations and speaking truth, confronting people, those sorts of things, asking those questions that sort of go, make you go, whoa, that's a, that's a bold question. And they ought to apply wisdom. They ought to ask the Holy Spirit to guide their conversations. They ought to be thoughtful and gracious in how they interact. And they can build trust in that context and open up someone's heart and soul to actually hear the truth. Because if you speak the truth... And someone doesn't hear the truth, the truth doesn't actually absorb into their heart. I love what Peter says to his protege, Timothy. It gets right to this. He says this, go out and proclaim the message. Right? He says, with urgency, exclamation, go whether it's an opportune time or not. Right? One translation says, whether in season or out of season. Correct, warn, and encourage. Right? Appropriate speaking, correct, warn, and encourage. But then he says, but do so with all the patience and instruction, or one might say wisdom, Needed to fulfill your calling. And then Paul says again in Colossians 4, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, 
making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be full of grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And that sort of captures it for the candid person. All right, next one, the intellectual approach. So the Apostle Paul is a guy that comes to mind, and of course Paul could confront you know, anybody with truth when necessary, but the hallmark of Paul's approach was logic-driven. We see this in Romans. We see it in many, if not most, of the letters he wrote in the New Testament. He was masterful at laying out a sound explanation of the central truths of who God was, the problem of our sinfulness, what Christ did on our behalf as the solution, and on and on it goes. And when you look at Paul's background, he was highly educated. He was tutored under a man reputed as one of the finest teachers in the land. He had an organized mind even. In his writings, you see his natural tendency to argue point, counterpoint. It's almost like he has these imaginary foes that he's talking to as you read it. And there's this Amazing uh, text in Acts chapter 17. You know, Paul is, you know, an intellectual to be reckoned with. And here he is. He's speaking to the philosophers in Athens. You may know the story. And he presents an ingenious argument. He begins with the Athenian idol, quoting a poet of the day. And he guides the conversation to be about an unknown God. He engages his audience. He challenges them to reflect on the only true God and his resurrected Messiah. His approach was so effective that some of his skeptical listeners, including atheists and agnostics, chose to believe in Jesus. These philosophers most likely wouldn't have responded to Peter's more candid approach. They needed something different. They needed the strong logic that conclusively proved his point. And maybe you resonate with that. Maybe that's even how you came to faith, perhaps. Because there are people all around us that need this approach. Someone with this style or approach tends to love um, ideas and evidence, right? They love working with that. They they might um, study apologetics, which is kind of the intellectual side of faith. You also tend to to like to dialogue about the intellectual side of faith. And some um, some people need this approach because they're just not okay with the sort of, hey, just live by faith or just take a leap of faith. I mean, those are oversimplified answers that do nothing for, for some people. Right? They, they hear all kinds of like, you know, they, they, want all the tr- they want the truth. They want the logic behind it. Right? They see, hear all kinds of holes kind of through that. And there, there are spiritual explorers all around us with intellectual questions about faith. And we can be people who step into those moments right? and, and, and declare what is true about the scriptures or, or, or the things that we know in sort of the apologetic realm. Now, here's the one caution I would point out, and it's this. That don't just stop at the intellectual answers you might want to give. It's important that we also not only defend the gospel, but define the gospel and not forget to share the gospel. What I would say is also a caution is, 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 is types like this can tend to be argumentative. This is not about win and lose. This is not about argumentation, right? This ultimately ought to be, you know, th- this style ought to ultimately be um, reminded to listen well because it's so important to the process. In fact, apologetics ought to be done in the spirit of wanting to help another person, not outduel them in an argument. 
right? Especially when it comes to someone who wants to follow Jesus or wants to know more or wants to be helped. Apologetics ought to be a helping ministry. And you got to hear who they are and you got to hear what their story is and you got to hear their struggles to ultimately meet them in the right place. First Peter says it like this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In that framework, then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then it says this, but do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is characterized by humility. It also resembles who Jesus is. Respect is characterized by dignity and also resembles who Jesus is. We ought to show people respect. We ought to be gentle. We ought to show people dignity and listen and be humble and not only give them stuff to learn, but we also become learners ourselves. So that may resonate with you. Maybe you want to write down a caution or write down that verse. Next style or approach is what I would call the narrative approach. Now, this may be a lot of you in the room. I think it has a broader stroke to it. And we don't know as much about this guy as we do like Paul and Peter, but we can be sure about this. In John chapter 9, the blind man who gets healed by Jesus has something happened in his life that was well worth talking about. He'd been blind since birth, and he regularly sat begging from people who were passing by. But his routine changed when Jesus came along and gave him the gift of sight. After he was able to see, he was thrust in front of this hostile audience. And he was charged to explain what had happened. And the man refuses to engage in theological debate. Perhaps Peter or Paul would have handled it different. But this man, John 9, verse 25 This is what it says. He spoke from his personal experience, and he confidently said, One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This is, in effect, a personal testimony, a personal experience with God. He had encountered Jesus. And quite honestly, if we're that style, if we take that approach and we share our personal story with God, it's quite difficult to dispute, even for a skeptic. In verse 3, Jesus said, this man has been born blind, listen to this, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I mean, what a great example for that approach to spreading the good news. God seemed to be preparing this man all his life in all the circumstances so he could share in this moment with these people about the life-changing reality and person of Jesus Christ. There are people that you live and work with who need to hear your personal narrative, how God has worked in your life or is working in your life, that they may not respond to the challenging argument or the candor or confrontation, but that personal testimony might capture their heart. God might become real to them in that moment as you share it. And again, one of the great things about telling our story is people can't really argue with it, right? Right? What are they going to say? That didn't happen? (laughs) I mean, they may not believe in the same God you believe in, but you are not required to force them to believe that. What the Bible teaches us is that we are required to share those experiences, to proclaim the good news, that God is at work in our life, and God can be at work in their life too if you invite him in. And I believe, whether we have this style or not, all of us really 
ought to know how to share our story. We ought to know our story. We ought to be able to share it in two or three minutes with someone. We ought to think about it. Maybe write it down. And, and, you know, someone with this style might be more of an expert or, or sort of specialist in sharing their story. And it just sort of comes out of you a lot more naturally. But all of us ought to know how to tell our story in a way that's compelling. Because we were compelled to Jesus. We started following Jesus at some point in our life. And people ought to know that. And not only your story 20 years ago, but how you're experiencing God now. How God is be, being real to you in your life in the here and now. I love 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says this. John writes, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. In other words, our personal narrative, our personal testimony. We proclaim it to you, what we've seen and heard. So that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we're sharing what we've experienced so that you can share in the same thing. In our community, what we're experiencing, Jesus, right? God, fellowship with him. God wants you to share what you have seen and heard, your personal story, so that other people will come to know and follow Jesus. Maybe that's your style that fits you. All right, number four. The relational approach, the relational approach. There's this tax collector named Matthew who, after he accepts the call to follow Jesus and become one of his followers, he decides to bring along as many friends as possible. He throws this party in Luke chapter 5 for all his tax collecting buddies. He invites Jesus too. He wants to expose them to Jesus And Matthew relies, in this case, on the relationships that he's built with people over time, and he seeks to further develop his friendships. He adds intentionality to his friendships. He does this, why? Because he genuinely cares about these people. He hopes they'll consider the claims of Christ. He invites them into this experience, and with this approach in mind, let me just say this also. That may be your approach. You may be a specialist and expert in the relational approach, but there's a principle here for all of us that relationships and friendships, we talked some about this last week, are so important in this process because people matter to God and people all around us are searching for God and people need people like you and me to testify, to be a witness of what God is doing and that God is in fact real and that God loves them. That the gospel travels best through relationships. And strong relationships are the foundation for spreading the good news. God calls us all to that. And in the context of relationships, again, we are learners. We are not just teachers or proclaimers. We are learners. We're in a dialogue, not a monologue in relationships. And people with this relational style... You tend to be warm and people-centered, and this sort of relational aspect of life and the combination and convergence of that with faith is such a powerful combination. You're often so people-centered so naturally. You often build trust and intimacy so easily, and you have credibility because of that with people. People in those contexts often um, ask you questions, and you ask them questions back because you care about people, and you're genuinely interested in people. And by the way, Jesus, when you study the Gospels, Jesus asked an immense amount of questions. Do you know this? In the Gospel of Matthew, he asks 87 questions. This is God in the flesh asking questions. He doesn't need answers. There's a different reason he's asking questions. 
In Luke, he asks 129 questions. Then when you look at all four Gospels, Jesus gets asked 183 questions minimum. And you know how he responds? 307 more questions. Only three, like what we would call direct answers. Amazing, right? So whatever style you are, if you want to emulate Jesus, ask more questions, right? We go around doing this evangelion, evangelism thing, and we think, oh, we got to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. Well, there's one aspect of that that's true, but I think we ought to be a lot better listeners in this conversation. We ought to ask questions about people's spiritual background, what they believe about God, or perhaps heaven, or perhaps life after death. We ought to ask questions to stimulate spiritual conversations and trust that God is at work in other people's lives. Ask them questions. Be curious. Be interested. Inevitably, they're most likely going to ask you questions as well. But I think we get sort of scared. Me too. I'm guilty. We get sort of scared in the moment to ask a question or, or say something about spiritual things because we like, man, we're on different pages and I know it. Why even talk about it? But my experience is this. The moments when I do bring something up or ask a question or engage a dialogue, more often than not, people are interested in those conversations. And we often walk around thinking people don't want to talk about it. I don't find that to be true. Now, how you talk about it is a whole different conversation. People are willing to dialogue with you. People are spiritually curious. The Bible says they, that God has put eternity in our hearts there's things in us, in all humanity, right, that, that arise spiritual motivation. They want to talk about this stuff. It's relevant to their lives. I'll never forget the conversation I had with uh, a friend of mine. Her name was Isla. It was back when I uh, lived in L.A. and I was um, working with college students. And Isla started coming to our church and through numerous people had lots of faith conversations, right? These sort of relational people, you know, kind of swept her up, loved her, cared about her. And she came to faith in Christ. It was awesome. And I, and I remember the conversation not long after that that I was having with her. And, and I said, hey, your faith is now amazing. You've made radical change in your life. And then my encouragement was her, to her was, Hey, you ought to share that with some people. And she was like, no, 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 like I'm not like an evangelist type. <laughs> to each his own. She said something like that, right? She said, no, 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 I'm not going to, you know. And, um, and I'm thinking in my head, okay, how can I reframe this conversation? Because she's got some idea of what this means. All I'm asking her to do is like share how like God is working in your life with her friends, really. And so I said to her, I said, hey, tell me, tell me like some stuff you like to do. And she says, well, I love cooking and I love hosting. I was like, awesome, what do, you, what do you like cooking? And she said, fondue. And then it like hit me in that moment. And I said, why don't we throw a fondue party? You host it. You're, uh, she had a studio apartment, but it was, you know, bigger than most studio apartments. You host it, we'll throw a party, we'll invite some friends, and let's just see what happens, right? You ho- yeah. And so um, she was like, relational kind of person herself. And, uh, and by the way, she went to this like fashion um, school, I can't remember the name of it. I forget right now, but um, she went to this fashion school. So she was always like decked out in fashion. She's the kind of person that can wear like, you know, polka dots and flowers from the 80s or something. I don't know if that's even from the 80s, but, you know, an outfit like that and it's cool. You know what I'm saying? I remember when Hudson asked me, he told me, Dad, I want to go back to the 80s and wear shorts like those guys in the 80s. And I'm like, no, that's the one thing. That's the one thing we will never bring back, right? Shorts from the 80s. Anyway, so Isla, right, she, she invites her friends. We put a little team together. And our whole goal was we're just going to build relationships. So we throw this fondue party, right? She comes out, you know, fashion, you know, queen sort of person. And she's, like, got this apron on. And she's, like, Donna Reed or something, right? She's, she's coming out, and she's just, like, serving all these people that are coming. And the first night we throw this, 50 people come. 
50 people, I mean, stuffed in this apartment like sardines, right? And there's chocolate and cheese. And does it make you hungry right now? It's chocolate and cheese. And like the whole thing. And she's got this apron. And she's serving all this food. She had kind of got some other people to help her. It was amazing. And then we sort of walked away going, hey, we should do that again. And then the next month, we had like 60 people, 70 people. I think there was 80 plus, maybe even 100 people. We couldn't even fit in her studio apartment, right? We were all in the hallway. People were going outside and coming in for round one, round two, round three kind of thing. And over time, we did that many months. Over time, several of those people, our church just happened to be right down the street. Several of those people came to our church. And some of those people actually came to faith in Christ. All because Isla, who said, I'm no evangelist, said, okay, I'll host a party And I'll build relationships, and I'll open up my life and invite them in, and then who knows what God might do. Relationships, they're huge. They're a huge part of this whole process. I love Paul's words. He says, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. In other words, Paul did whatever he could, anything short of sin, to help people enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I wonder if we did that. I wonder if we opened up our lives and invited people in and built relationships. Just, might, just what might happen in the context of those conversations. All right, the fifth approach is the invitational approach. The invitational approach. Here's a unique thing about God. He chooses unlikely people to fulfill his divine purposes. So don't count yourself out. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is a great example. She had, she had three things that were going against her. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. Hang tight for a second. She was living an immoral lifestyle, and any of those three in that culture would be enough to disqualify her from being taken seriously by people in that culture. But of course that didn't stop Jesus. He ignores all the conventional wisdom, all the political correctness, and he initiates a conversation with her. She quickly realizes that this isn't just any ordinary Jewish rabbi. Jesus is prophetic in his insights. He's authoritative in his answers. And it convinces her, as this dialogue unfolds, of his claim to be the Son of God. As a result, she immediately goes to her town and she brings lots of people to the well where they could meet and hear Jesus. This invitation propels Jesus, it says in the story, to stay there two more days. And many of her friends declare, verse 42, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. A single invitation, a single invitation can change a life, can change a city. And I believe there are people all around us who need an invitation. In fact, it's interesting that the research, Barna, Adults in America, 25% of them, say they would go to church if a friend invited them. So, okay, we live in the Silicon Valley. Maybe you're a little skeptical. Let's just say 15%. But, hey, if you invite six, one might come. And I just wonder, I just wonder if we started being more inviters. We're not responsible for their yes. We're responsible for the invitation. We're responsible to say, hey, there's something really amazing happening here in our community. And I think people would make great spiritual progress. I imagine some of you in this room are here because you got invited by someone else. I know some of you found us online, which is great too. But hey, let's be inviters of people. Right? This, is, this, is, this is the heart of the woman at the well. 
And maybe you resonate with her. I know some people have more of a knack for it. And man, we need you especially because you seem to bring, you know, Dozens of people with you anywhere you go and leverage that. That's a gift. Invite people like crazy. We try to make these cards like we have for Easter coming up. There's an invitation to make it a little bit easier for you. And here's the one caution I would say for the inviters among us. And it's, and it's simply this, that, that invite, invite, invite. But also remember, you're, you're also responsible to share the good news too, not just invite, Right? You have a role in that. And don't get discouraged when people say no. Man, I, get, I have a tendency to get discouraged too. Or I just, I just assume someone will say no. So I don't even ask them. Uh, this little parable Jesus tells, he says this. He says, go to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. It's the heart of Jesus that we would be inviters. The last approach is what I'll call the service approach. In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, there's a woman named Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Exactly, right? I'm glad you laughed, right? We're not being sacrilegious. We're just being honest. Anyway, it says in the verse, right, always doing good and helping the poor. That's what she did. She was known for acts of kindness and service, which she performed in the name of Christ. Specifically, she made robes and articles of clothing for widows and other needy people. It would have been very hard for people to observe her activity and not get a glimpse of the love of God that inspired her. In fact, her work was so important that when she died a premature death, God sent Peter to raise her from the dead and put her back into service. Go read the story. It's amazing. For those with this style, God wired you to quite natural and easily serve serve others. You notice their needs, needs other people don't see. You find joy in meeting those needs. You do tangible things to serve others, to extend compassion, to take action. And your ordinary acts of service done out of your love for Christ can have a huge impact. The caution, I would say, is that action alone doesn't substitute for words. Romans 10, 14. Right? Nowhere in the Bible does anyone come to faith without words. So actions are important, but words are too. The words of Jesus capture this approach in Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, no matter your style, I'll speak to that for a moment, we are called to be servant-hearted people, to people who are doing good deeds, blessing other people with the love of Christ, motivated by our faith, it's such an important aspect of our faith. So we ought to be blessing people and serving people and encouraging people. We ought to be giving away our lives to other people, being kind and compassionate, extending our faith in those kinds of ways. Because as James says, our good works ought not be separated from our good faith. He says faith without works is dead. But that means faith with works is life. And I don't know about you, but I want a faith that's alive. I want a faith that speaks to the people around us. And the Bible says when we live in the good works, when by our faith we produce good works, other people will come to know, a couple of other people will begin to ask, other people will be piqued in their curiosity to know why. So all in all, if we step back from that, when, when it comes to discovering your unique approach, nobody's going to fit one style perfectly. In fact, you'll probably find opportunities to kind of lean into to more than one of those. But the point is this. 
that God designed diversity on his team. And each member is stronger in some styles than others. And and in fact, there might be a number seven or eight approach, so adopt that. The crucial thing to remember, though, is this, that Jesus follows. If you want a contagious faith, you don't have to function outside, by and large in your life, of the unique way God has made you. He wants you to live in that. He wants you to develop that. He wants you to mature in that so that you can advance his mission forward with maximum impact. And all of us must use our actions and our words in a way that fits us. We also ought to remember that there are moments that God does call us to step out and risk, to do something that may not feel comfortable. You read the Bible, and that happens all the time. So it's not just about comfort, but it is about knowing your unique design. And then we get to team up with each other along the way to serve other people and bless other people and share with other people and invite them into what we believe is true, that God loves humanity, that God invites us, you and me and all the rest, into a relationship with him so that we can spend forever with him in eternity. We're not responsible for someone's choice to choose to follow Jesus, but we are responsible to be Christ's ambassadors, to carry the good news. Right? Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. I know we don't all love that word evangelist, but when we redefine it like this, when we really understand what the scriptures are calling all of us to, man, there is an impact that awaits us, that God wants to use us to spread the gospel. We are stewards of the gospel. We ought to proclaim it, because if we don't proclaim it, the Bible says if people don't hear it, they won't believe it. they got to hear it. we got to proclaim it with our deeds. we got to proclaim it with our words. Because even people who watch a life of a contagious Christian closely, it's not enough. Somebody has to spell it out. Somebody has to explain it. That God came on our behalf because of the sin that we caused, the damage that we caused because of it. That he came in the form of Jesus. And that all of us need to accept and embrace what he did at the cross so that we receive his forgiveness. And we can live in that reality both now and forever. That's the gospel. And there's no better story on the planet. There's no better news. There's no technology. There's nothing about life beyond the gospel that is better than the gospel. It is good news that Jesus died on a cross on your behalf because he loves you. And when you receive that and embrace that and find that to be true, everywhere you go in life, Jesus said, as you are going, would you make disciples? Would you invite other people in your own unique way, but would you invite other people into the mission of God, into the overall greater purpose? Because all of us are called to connect with people along the way, to build relationships of love, to share truth, to share grace with the world around us. We are ambassadors for Christ. And if we show people dignity along the way, if we encourage people and serve people and bless people and listen to people, I can assure you, God, who dwells inside of you and lives all around you and is at work in the lives of people in every crevice of your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, in your friendships, that God will use you. And I have moments in my life that I have missed it, that I have not spoke up, that I have not shared, that I have a lost opportunity. But I have a few moments in my life, like when I wrote my letter to my grandfather who was on his deathbed, And my dad read it to him, and as he read it to him and it shared the gospel, even in that moment, his eyes grew big, his his eyes welled up, and he had lived a life for 80-something years that was anti-God. And the final day, 
gave his life to Jesus. And I just go, it's worth it, isn't it? If you've had one moment like that, it's worth it. And if you haven't, there's a great adventure that's a, that awaits you. And I'll close with this today. Paul's words, who if anybody got it, Paul got it. He says it to the church in Colossae, and I pray this over you guys. He says this, continue praying. Keep alert and always thanking God. Always pray for us that God will give us an opportunity to tell people his message. Pray that we can preach the secret that God has made known about Christ. This is why I am in prison, Paul says. Pray that I can speak in a way that will make it clear as I should. Be wise in the way you act with people who are not believers, making the most of every opportunity. When you talk, you should always be kind and pleasant so you will be able to answer everyone in the way you should. We bow your head with me for a moment. God, I do pray this for us as a church. We are carriers of the good news. We are loved by you, forgiven by you. And for those of us in this space who are followers of Jesus, would you give us the courage, the humility, the respect. Help us to carry out your mission. Help us to partner with you with wisdom, with boldness, and in ways that align our hearts and lives with your mission in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.